Welcome to it. It's the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Tuesday, the 8th of March. Well, the war in Ukraine continues to dominate headlines across the world. It enters uh, its 12th day and the spillover from the conflict between Russia and Ukraine continues. Biz News editor Alec Hogg has a fascinating chat with Randmore Fund Management founder Sean Pesh. That's about uh, Process, the international e-commerce side of Nasbat, having written down its 12 billion rand stake in a Russian social networking platform owned by uh, the VK Group. Uh, sanctions are starting to bite everywhere now, and that group's chief executive finds himself on a US sanctions list. Actually, it's a double-header today from Alec Hogg, who also spoke with former British diplomat to Ukraine, Cormac Smith, as we continue to try to make sense of the conflict in Eastern Europe and what the local perspective on that war is. Our partner, the Financial Times, as always, has a fantastic summation of all you need to know on the international market side of things. Then we're going to end off by bringing you part two of the Q&A session with uh, Democratic Alliance Federal Chairperson Helen Ziller. She recently spoke at the Biz News Conference in the Drakensberg and has a lot to say about the, quote, fight for the soul of South Africa. And if you missed part one of that chat, you can go to our Biz News Power Hour channel on Spotify and uh, listen to Monday's program. In fact, if you've missed out on any previous episode, just go and look for it on that Biz News uh, Power Hour channel and you'll find it all there. Also, don't forget to look out for the Biz News Radio channel on Spotify. And that's where all these interviews you hear are stored as standalone interviews that can be downloaded and listened to at your convenience. All right, let's get to Nadia Swat now with your news headlines and market report. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa has said that he will not comment on accepting nomination for a second term as leader of the party. This comes after the convener for the ANC's Mpumalanga Provincial Task Team, Mandla Ndlovu, called on Ramaphosa to accept the nomination for a second term as the ANC president. This follows recent political instability in Mpumalanga, resulting in provincial conferences being delayed and subsequently postponed by the ANC's National Working Committee. As the price of Brent crude oil continues to climb, there are calls for alternative solutions to ease the burden on consumers. There has been speculation that petrol could soon cost 40 rand a litre, but experts said that there was no need to panic. The ongoing war in Ukraine has driven up oil prices and there are fears that it could get worse, with oil stocks not meeting demand. Researcher and economist Dale McKinley said that if the Russia-Ukraine war continued for a long time, and the US succeeded in getting the world to boycott the purchase of Russian oil, then consumers could see prices rise steeply in the next few months. It's not just going to be the fuel price, it's going to be the knock-on prices of transport, food and other things, so we need to prepare ourselves, but I don't know if the worst-case scenario is going to happen 
but certainly what is coming is going to hit us in the pocket, McKinley said. As 40% of South Africa's water is lost due to leaks, non-payment and other factors, the National Water and Sanitation Minister has revealed plans to establish a national water infrastructure agency that aims to refurbish and expand the country's critical water infrastructure. Mchunu said it would cost a fortune to source new water and protect existing resources. Still, they are planning to set up a National Water Resources Infrastructure Agency, which would be built around the state-owned Trans-Caledon Tunnel Authority and have the duty to attract new investment by packaging major water infrastructure projects. In the financial news, the JC All Share Index was lower at 72,626 points. In the currency markets, the rand was 15 rand 32 to the dollar, 20 rand 10 to the pound, and 16 rand 70 to the euro. Gold is trading at $2,012 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back $2,045 an ounce. Brent crude is trading at around $126 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back around 595,000 rand. South Africa's economic growth was slightly stronger than expected in the fourth quarter of 2021, with real gross domestic product growing by 1.2%. Hit by the impact of July's civil unrest, the economy shrank by 1.7% in the third quarter. Economists were expecting growth of around 1% in the fourth quarter. But despite the growth in the fourth quarter, the economy is still smaller than in the second quarter of 2021, before civil unrest hit the country. The economy is also still smaller than it was in the first quarter of 2020, before the first pandemic-related lockdowns. This is according to Statistics SA. Process, the international e-commerce arm of Naspers, has written down its $769 million stake in a Russian social networking platform and vacated its board seats, joining a host of companies and investors tallying up the losses from Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The write-down comes after VK Group's CEO, Vladimir Kirienko, was added to a U.S. sanctions list after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which rejected with disdain on Monday Moscow's offer of Ukrainian escape routes to Russia as the war entered its 12th day. As a consequence of these sanctions, Process asked its directors on the VK board to resign their positions, said Process CEO Bob Van Dyke. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Sean Pesch of Ranmore Funds, uh, good to be talking with you, Sean. You've been guiding us really well on the whole NASPAS process risk. Uh, it started off some time ago, 2018 I think it was, where you pointed out that there were VIE structures that I think most shareholders in NASPAS had no clue what they meant, um, and maybe a lot still don't. Let's just unpack that quickly before we go to the latest issue. So, Alec, what a VIE structure is, um, it stems from China's information security laws. And it means that the underlying security, the underlying assets can't be held by foreign shareholders. So what they end up being held, who they end up being held by are the CEOs, CIOs, etc. And all the foreign shareholder has is a contract which says that they can consolidate the results of the underlying business. So, you know, that hasn't been tested. It's apparently contravenes Chinese law. It hasn't been tested in law, but it's never been a problem. And so investors let it lie. But um, as this whole Russian thing has shown us, you know, things can go badly awry and, and they can do so very quickly. 
Um, and so that was really the concern um, that I raised. And and hopefully, hopefully um, China has witnessed what's going on and how strongly the foreign shareholders or foreign markets have responded to the invasion of Ukraine and you know, are reassessing their ambitions regarding Taiwan and hopefully will be responsible shareholders and these won't be a problem. But you never know. And that was the risk. Yeah, by I waving liked. the flag, uh, you actually got us to reassess our position in NASPERS process in the Biz News portfolio. And we sold out at levels that are way over 50% higher than the current share price. So thank you very much on behalf of our community for, for pointing that out to us. But right, right now, process NASPERS is back in the news. And this time, because of the investment it had in Mail.ru, uh, which has now morphed into a, a Russia's equivalent of Facebook. Just take us through exactly what's going on there. Process had an investor call yesterday, and they own 25.7% in um, a Russian social media company called VK. And they're writing down their investment. Now, if you look at Process's NAV on Process Investor Relations page, you'll see that that number of 769 tallies with what they have as VK in their net asset value. And and I, they have no choice, really, because at the moment, VK has been suspended on the Russian market. It's not trading. Uh, hopefully, when things settle down, and I'm rather hopeful that we're at the tail end of this war. I know that's you know, uh, very different to the the mainstream thinking out there, but no one can afford for this to go on for much longer. And so let's hope that in within a few days that they have lots of peace talks, they're ongoing. Let's hope that there's some sort of resolution. But but process has no choice really but to write it down. Um, its market cap, VK's market cap in 2020 was six billion. When it was suspended, it was only 204 million. Okay. So you can see the extent to which it had fallen. It also has debt of some net just under a billion dollars. And looking at the process statement and the fact that the number ties up, it doesn't suggest that that process had advanced or had any of that uh, VK debt because that would be a problem. Um, and I think you've seen an exodus from Russia from just companies on a daily basis. And it's actually a bit of a concern for global markets because you know, you've got these large multinationals that everybody owns in the portfolio that are priced for perfection. And, and now all of a sudden, we've got an imperfect world. So the good news for Process and Nuspers shareholders is that in terms of the NAV, it's not a big deal. If you look at Process's NAV at the end of December, and it's obviously a little bit lower now, it's, it was 700 million out of 212 billion. So 0.3%. So that's the good news. Um, but hopefully, once VK, once the Moscow market opens again, VK uh, is listed and is trading again. You know, process can can execute a more, what's the word? You know, a, a, a execute a sale and recoup some of that. Um, so the worst case scenario, the the NAV is hit by 03 percent. I mean, I don't think that's a big issue. The bigger issue is the Chinese assets. That's what I think the bigger issue is. You know, you've seen companies that are owned by ten cents, like C which is down 75% since October last year. And uh, and no earnings, massive multiple, well, in fact, no earnings, massive market caps. Um, and that's a bit of a problem. So, you know, that I would argue is still a risk for investors, um, but, but obviously less so. Which has then morphed into VK, which is... Uh, its share price, as you say, has gone down from market valuation of $6 billion to $200 million, which is an incredible decline. At the point of suspension. Uh, and then yeah. it was suspended. Is, was that all because of the war? 
Yeah, pretty much. I mean, all the Russian assets just collapsed in a heap because there was just rampant fear. People were worried about what was going to happen with the uh, the suspension of securities, etc. And it was get me out at any price. Do you have an ability, if you take a contrarian view, and as you suggesting that the war might be towards the tail end, uh, if that were to happen, uh, to be able to buy into those Russian assets now? Is the Russian stock market even trading? No, the Russian market is not trading, Alec, and neither are the GDRs here in the London International Exchange, so you can't buy those. Um, the, there are a couple of Russian stocks which are listed in the US. Those are also suspended. So actually, probably the only way is via an ETF if you wanted to get, but I think most of those are suspended as well. So you actually, you, you, can't, uh, you can't get involved until these, these, these suspensions are, list, are, you know, are lifted. Um, Which is a yeah. bit of a dilemma for a, a value investor like yourself, because if you look at it on the on the one hand, uh, you you do try and avoid risk as much as possible. But on the other hand, the Russian assets, if there is to be a, a ceasefire anytime soon, would appear at the at what they were priced at before suspension to be incredibly cheap. Well, I mean, certainly so. And, and in fact, we held some Russian assets in the fund and have been hurt by this because, you know, the, the price that they marked in the fund is pretty much naught. Um, and, uh, and so I know that that risk, unfortunately, has manifested. But, you know, these businesses are not bankrupt. I mean, Gazprom, uh, Gazprom and, and, and a number of the other Russian companies are paying uh, foreign debt holders and coupons and, you know, and, and right now. So, so the company's not bankrupt. You look at the European gas price and the oil price. The question, the point is, is just the market price has just just been suspended, so you can't trade them. So that's the that's the important thing. So in the fullness of time, I'm sure the value will you know unlock. Um, and uh, yeah, but but that is the thing. So that's the so the good news is those companies are not bankrupt, and I don't think VK. You know, it looks like it's expected was expected to earn some profit. There's probably less competition now with many of the other social media companies having left. Um, but I think from an international company perspective, process really had no choice but to exit. I mean, you've seen large companies like BP. I was a little surprised at their statement. I mean, BP have said, we are selling Rosneft assets. Now, when you announce to the world that you're selling and you've got a massive, and, and who they're selling to, there's only one buyer, and that is either Rosneft or the Russian government. And so they're going to determine the price. And so BP are going to take an absolute bath on this. I think it's over $20 billion. Um, what I think, would yeah, but but you understand that then the boardrooms of these international companies right now, being associated with Russia is just terrible. And of course, it's not you know it's it's really Putin, it's not the Russian people. I mean, they're you know even this morning they're Russian authors and uh, coming out and saying that you know they are just embarrassed by their nation and rightly so. Uh, but it's it's embarrassed by the leadership, and I think we've got to be you know careful to. To tie everybody with yeah, the same well, we've been through that in South Africa, haven't we? Uh, in a through apartheid. Um, but Sean, just just before we move off Russia, and I'd I'd really like to just explore a little more on the process China issue with you. When you say that you think this could be at the tail end of the war, that's a very contrarian view. What makes you believe that? Well, you know, if you look at from Putin, this has not gone according to Putin's plan. That's the first thing. You've got protests in the streets in, in Moscow and Petersburg on a scale they've never seen before. 
you know, it's a bit like it reminds me of the defiance campaign back in South Africa. You know, you, when you have a few people trans breaking those crazy rules or you know just horrific rules, they get arrested. But when you do it on mass, you can't arrest 145 million people. And so I, um, yeah, so so that's the first thing. The the shop supermarket shelves are bare. People can't withdraw cash. Um, oligarchs' plans to spend some off the coast of Saint Tropez have been dashed. Uh, and so there's just pressure building, you know, the, the bodies, body bags are arriving back in Russia. Um, the, the, the reality is dawning on the Russian public as to what is going on. And Putin's making no progress. And at the same time, the Ukrainians are just being more and more emboldened. And I mean, the whole world is just in awe of Ukraine. My goodness, they have just, you know, the support. And they've actually shown that NATO hasn't really, I mean, they've managed without NATO. So I think if you look at what Russia said the other day, they said, they said, if you recognize these two provinces, if you agree not to join NATO, the war will stop in a moment. That's what a spokesperson said. And um, and they the talks broke down, but now they're apparently continuing. Um, I w- if I was Zelensky, I would say, look, this is an opportunity to stop the bloodshed and stop the humanitarian crisis. And and let's face it, if Russia retreats now, they're never coming back. There's no ways they are coming back. So this NATO membership is really academic. And Donetsk and Luhansk, well, there wasn't a lot of resistance. So maybe that's a small price to pay for the fact that the big aggressor has now gone. Yeah, sure, there should be some massive penalties in terms of helping rebuild the country. But, but um, you know, and, and what is the alternative? If you really push Putin a bit more, you know, could he just, this unhinged individual, just fire a nuclear bomb and wipe out Ukraine? So that's the downside. So the upside, so I think, and Zelensky is a very smart person, and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against him actually saying, you know what, because you, you, in any negotiation, Alec, you need to give a party the, a ladder to climb down. You know, Putin needs something. He needs to be able to go back to his, his populace and say, there we go. I didn't want them to join NATO. They've agreed to it. We've won something. You can't, he's not going to retreat without having something. So give him something that you don't really save need. face. That's what yeah, I'm allow him to save face. It's a, it's a negotiation one hundred and one. And China, as far as process is con- is, is uh, involved in China, there's the it's it is more than a hundred percent of the process share price, which is embedded in ten cent. Uh, what is it about that side that worries you? And I, and I just want to go back maybe with the first point being with the invasion of Ukraine. There were many pundits who were saying this would embolden China to attack Taiwan. I think that was the risk. I think the what China has seen, how the rest of the world has just responded against this aggression, will probably make them think twice. So hopefully that risk recedes. And that would be good for South African savers because Naspers has such a large percentage of its assets in China. So that that is the hope. Um, you know, but we'll have time will tell. Um, I think it's also forcing investors to consider, you know, what do they own and what do they hold? And I think if you have real companies with real assets that generate cash, this is actually a buying opportunity. I mean, something like, you know, we hold ABN AMRO in in the fund. It's down 37% since the 9th of Feb. They have minimal Russian exposure Um, and it's buying back shares. It, it's got a, it's overcapitalized buying back shares and was doing so at 70 cents in the dollar. Now it's buying back at 50 cents in the dollar. So, um, you know, now the concern obviously is that if Russian gas prices stay up or na- European gas prices stay up and we try and wean ourselves off that that's going to 
force the Europe to go into a recession. And so the sooner this resolves, I mean, if Russia pulls out tomorrow, gas prices are going to normalize, oil price is going to come down, nickel price is going to correct, etc. And so, you know, that, that'll hopefully avert a recession. But the longer this goes on, the, the higher, greater the risk is of a recession. And those are, those are investors' concerns right now. But the China risk for NICEPAS stroke process? Well, hopefully it's also focused management's minds on the, the risk of having assets in countries controlled by regimes that where they can do what on earth they want. And so um, I would hope that, uh, you know, I don't know why they don't approach, maybe they have done, approach Tencent and say, why don't you, buy, if you think this is such good value, why don't you buy back some of our shares? I know we can't commit, we, we've already committed not to sell anymore for the next three years, but why don't you take some of the shares off our hands? So, you know, the more they, they, they sell those assets and use those proceeds to buy back stock, I wouldn't be in favor of that, but I don't want them to, and I don't own any of these shares, but I, but they, what we really don't want is them to sell those assets, receive the proceeds, and then go and spend it on other frivolous investments that are losing money. You know, they need to lock in the discount for shareholders. That's what they need to do. Cormac Smith joins us now to help us make some, well, some sense of what's going on uh, with Russia, Ukraine, and in particular, the South African angle. But Cormac, just, just by way of background, I'm talking to you in the UK. Yes, I'm based in central London. I'm an Irishman, but I've lived in this great country for 34 years. And um, for nearly two decades of my time here, um, I worked for British government, both local and central government. And much of that or the recent uh, time has been spent in Ukraine. Well, yes, I spent two years in Ukraine as a British diplomat between 2016 and 2018. And I was effectively, I guess, I was I was loaned to the Ukrainian foreign minister as part of Britain's ongoing support for Ukraine in its journey to democratize and to deal with corruption and to, you know, Ukraine, like South Africa in many ways, is a very, very young state. You know, it's only 31 years old, 92 percent of the population having voted for independence from Russia in 1991 after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So like all new states, they deal with lots and lots of issues. Unfortunately, Ukraine has one more issue. It has the worst neighbor in the world who invaded Ukraine eight years ago with the illegal annexation of Crimea and further invaded Donbass in the east. And the reason they did that really goes to the heart of what is happening today. There was a popular revolution known as the uh, Revolution of Dignity or the Maidan Revolution, because it centered around Maidan Square in Kyiv, the capital. And that was in protest for a corrupt and autocratic president who had been democratically elected in 2010, but turned out to be very corrupt, very autocratic. And when the people clearly wanted to move to the West and towards democracy, decided pretty well on his own that um, he would not sign an association agreement with the European Union and would instead sign an agreement to um, form closer economic ties with the Russian Federation. The response to that back in late 2013 was a student protest. The government at the time, under Yanukovych, sent out a special police force known as the Berkut, who no longer exist, and they brutally beat the students. I have heard um, stories of iron bars being used instead of their, in place of their normal batons. Somebody said to me in Ukraine, there's one thing you don't do, you don't touch our children. Many, many people told me that in the two years I was there. 
Within days, hundreds of thousands of people had taken to the streets of major cities, Kiev in particular, which was the heart of the revolution. That revolution lasted for over 100 days, 102 days, I think. In the end, Yanukovych tried bringing in what I believe were Russian special forces, snipers who took up positions on the high rooftops and buildings around the square, and they murdered. They shot with sniper rifles over 100 who have gone into almost folklore as the heavenly 100, and there's a, there's a very moving wall commemorating them just be, or just off Maidan Square in, um, um, in Kiev to this day with, a, with every single person, you know, named and what they did and what age they were and so forth and on what particular day they were shot. So that popular revolution effectively brought down the Yanukovych regime. Yanukovych fled to Russia where he still lives in exile. The Ukrainians put a democratic government in its place. As we're talking in South Africa, and I, I know there is sympathy for Russia in South Africa, it's important to note that the the Russian myth, the Russian lie, false narrative that this was a Western-backed coup against a, um, a, you know, a democratically elected leader is completely false, and it put in place a Nazi regime backed by the states. It was a popular revolution. It was Europe's last great popular revolution where the people, millions of the people, spontaneously took the streets. And in my time, I probably had thousands of conversations with both expats and more so Ukrainians who were actually there on the Maidan throughout the revolution and told me very visceral, heartfelt stories of what it was all about. But this was more than Putin could stomach. So Putin creates lies. And in Russia, we have to remember, we have a country... We have a regime that lies on an industrial scale, and they use those lies strategically as part of their hybrid war strategy. And that's a hybrid war, actually, that um, Russia has been waging against Ukraine for eight years, but also against the rest of the West. And a hybrid war includes not just conventional violence, which has obviously been visited in just horrific degrees on the Ukrainian people at the moment, but cyber attacks, interference in elections, assassination attempts, and, you know, the vilest of um, propaganda spewed out from, uh, I use the word, vomitoriums like Orti, Russia Today, and Sputnik, and the thousands of poisonous little keyboard jockeys who the Russian state employ to uh, drip their poison all across the um, internet. And what we have to remember about these lies is, unlike the old Soviet Union, they do not form a coherent narrative. All they intend to do is to sow um, confusion and division and discord in, in the West. It's, a, it's very much a divide, part of a divide and conquer strategy. Cormac, why, why do the Russian people tolerate this then if it is such a concerted effort and so full of lies do they just not know what's going on well you know i had this i had a long conversation on only saturday night with one of my closest friends in ukraine who is a very senior diplomat we worked very closely in the two years that i was there and you know i was you know he was saying that this is this is not just putin this is a large part of the russian people and in fact he sent me a statistic this morning that 69% of the Russian people support 
the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But it's important to remember, just as just as Russia has a massive lying machine as part of its propaganda, as part of its hybrid war toolkit, it also has an iron grip on communication with its own people. Now, a number of things. I There was a big piece of research when I was out in Ukraine um, carried out by the in partnership by the Estonians and the Ukrainians that looked at how the West was depicted in Russian media. And one of the things that came out of this, apart from being fed a constant um, um, diet of false narratives and lies about how about how corrupt the West was, how the West was a threat to Russia, how the West was decadent, and everything, everything bad that Russia was not, Russia being good, apart from being fed that constant diet of lies, and I could, I could send you the research if you want to have a look at it. It estimated 95% of the Russian people get no news from outside the Russian Federation. And in Russia, the media, the media is controlled almost absolutely. At the time of this, 95% of broadcast media was controlled, not by the state, effectively by one man, because that is the absolute total and control that Putin has. Now, that was then. We've seen now even more draconian laws. In the last few days, we have seen the last liberal, if you like, radio station in um, Russia closed down. We have seen a new law rammed through the Duma only last Friday, whereas anybody who contradicts the state narrative faces up to 15 years in prison. They are not being told that they have um, that they have invaded Ukraine. They've been told it's a special military operation. The word invasion is not allowed to be used. They are being told if they if they get any pictures of bombed out schools and buildings. By the way, um, as of this morning, the Russians have bombed 215 schools in Ukraine, plus lots of hospitals and and other buildings. But if they see this, they are told that no, the Ukrainians are doing this themselves. They are told that Ukraine is, needs to be denazified, that it is a Nazi state. And obviously, with the history of the Soviet Union, the term, the, the Nazi term is particularly, is particularly toxic. Well, it's a Nazi state where the far right have never managed to gain more than 2% in a general election. Actually, you know what? I lied to you. In the 2019 general election, the far right grouped together in a coalition and they achieved 2 0.15% of the vote. They achieved no seats in the Rada, that is the Ukrainian parliament. Whereas on the other hand, Volodymyr Zelensky, this man who has emerged as the greatest leader on the world stage, I don't want a ride, I want ammo when the Americans offered to get him to safety. He is a Jew. He is a Jew of Russian origin who lost multiple family members in the Holocaust. At one time, after he came in, Ukraine was the only country outside the state of Israel to have a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister. And large numbers of the cabinet of ministers are also Jewish. And there have been surveys carried out when I was there in 2017, 2018, that actually showed that of all the former communist and Eastern European countries, Ukraine was the least anti-Semitic and the most welcoming to the Jewish tradition. Some Nazi state... But the good news is I think most of the world is beginning to catch on to the toxic 
lies that Russia tells. But to answer your question, it's not just the lies that the Russian people are fed and the fact that they don't get their news from anywhere else. And remember, television is hugely important in Russia because the poorer people of whom there are many and the older people only listen to television. So it is... It, it, it is a complete suppression of any of anything that comes from the outside, along with a diet a, um, a diet of of constant lies and false narratives that paints one particular picture. Here's something that's very interesting, and it's you know things. There are signs that things will change, no matter how much. Putin tries to repress the Russian people. Russia came out a few days ago and they admitted, which was amazing in itself, that they have lost nearly 500 troops in the first 10 days of the invasion. And that was seen in the West as amazing that they would even admit that. According to the latest figures I have, according to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, and also now being reported in the New York Times, and various people saying, Russia are taking huge losses. The estimate from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense being reported in the New York Times is they have lost 11,000 men in 11 days. Let's put that in context. That's 1,000 a day. In Afghanistan, when the Soviets went in for nine and a half years from 79 to 89, they lost 15,000 in nine and a half years, about four a day, between four and five a day. They're losing over a thousand a day. In they underestimated a number of things. They underestimated the massive support across the globe, with a few exceptions. And I think there's, you know, questions to be answered in in South Africa. And I think the South actually, I think the good South African people really have the question to answer. You know, a people that fought against the iniquity and the evil of apartheid only a very short few years ago. And a young and a young country which still has its issues that it is grappling to deal with should have maybe a little bit more empathy and sympathy with the plight of Ukraine today. Cormac, what's happening on the ground in Ukraine? Clearly, you have many contacts there. You are well tuned in as well. On the one hand, it appeared as though Putin was expecting a blitzkrieg. On the other hand, the conscripts that we hear about, they certainly don't have the stomach for killing women and children. And also now under the impression that what should have been a very quick and clean victory and a welcoming population is is quite the opposite. But what is the feedback that you're getting on the ground? Lots and lots of stories of prisoners of war being taken, um, whole units sometimes surrendering completely demoralized, badly led, badly fed, looting supermarkets because their their supply lines and their logistics are breaking down. But young kids basically saying they thought they were on a training exercise. Um, and the Ukrainians are being very smart from everything I can tell and from the, fa- from the fact that I lived among them for two years and worked at the heart of their government and actually worked with five ministries, including the Ministry of Defense in my time there and the fact that I'm speaking to senior people on a daily basis. Yes, there's fog of war, and there may be, if they say 11,000, it might be only 9,000, or it might be 14,000, because there's fog of war. But these are their best estimates. But we're also hearing stories of prisoners of war who are young conscripts who have no stomach for the war. They are badly led. They, can, they, they haven't been told what they're really doing. They're ringing their mothers, and they're 
they're being given phones by their captors. And everything I've heard is they are being treated as prisoners of war under the, under the Geneva Convention. The, the, there's just too many stories coming through for it not to be true of how some of these kids just didn't know where they were going. They don't have the stomach for the fight. So that's one thing. The other thing, so many people have said to me, this must be, I stopped counting after 50 interviews. And so many people have said to me, Cormac, are you surprised with, with how things have gone and the resistance? I said, no, not at all. But telling anybody would listen that these were the toughest people I have ever come across in my life. Also, the warmest and the most welcoming were people that I fell in love with, apart from making friends for a life. But if you look at their history for the last hundred years and how they have been abused and how genocide has been inflicted on them more than once, the Holodomor in 1932 and 1933, where Stalin wiped up, out up to 10 million Ukrainians. And then by both the Nazis and the Bolsheviks during the Second World War, where they lost more, Ukraine lost more people than any other country on the globe. More than Russia, more than Japan, more than America, more than Britain, more than any other country. And that's often forgotten because we think of the sacrifice that the Soviet Union made. Well, Ukraine was the jewel in the crown of the Soviet Union. It was only one of 15 states, but it accounted for some 40% of industrial output. So two things to get back to really get back to this. Two things for forget about the lies of denazification. Forget about the lies that it's about Ukraine being a threat to Russia or joining NATO. And forget about the lies that they were carrying out genocide in um, Donbass against Russian speakers because there's no evidence for any of this, and it's completely not true. Why, you know, Putin has a pathological hatred of the Ukrainian people, because they dared to choose freedom and to choose democracy. So yes, he wants Ukraine back for the um, wealth that it entails, because he does want to put the old Soviet empire back together to a certain extent. And he has said the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. Think of all the horrible things happened in the 20th century and think what a ridiculous thing that is to say alone. But the thing that he fears most and why this invasion is happening, he fears nothing more than a successful, democratic and free Ukraine on his doorstep. Because that will, you ask the question about the Russian people, no matter how much he tries to control the message and communication, he can't keep the truth out from the Russian people forever. And we know there are thousands being arrested now who are, um, who are um, and peace protesters. What he fears is a free democratic Ukraine. And he has a pathological hatred for the Ukrainian people, which is why we use the term genocidal because he has said Ukraine has no right to exist. And his foreign minister has said Ukraine has no right to sovereignty. How do you see this all playing out? we what, 12 days now into uh, the war. Some are saying it's going to be a very long war, a guerrilla war, that Putin will win through sheer force of, of numbers. But the Ukrainians continue to surprise everybody with their fierce resistance. But, but having lived amongst these people who you clearly admire, how do you see it all ending? I can't answer that question because there are, sm- there are wiser and more experienced men and women in this field than me who can't answer that question. I'll make one prediction and then I'll make another few comments. My one prediction is Putin will not win and he will never have Ukraine. And I've made this prediction before, but my great fear 
my great fear is how many tens of thousands, maybe more Ukrainians will have to die to keep their to keep their freedom and to prevent this evil psychopathic criminal thug from having their country. I I said in the very first days of the invasion that things clearly were not going his way and my fear was that he would that he would resort to far more indiscriminate actually discriminate because it's very deliberate attacks so, and indeed that is exactly what he did because that's how bullies behave when they're faced with somebody that stands up to them um so you know the um if you know if we look at our history you know Russia has won wars by just throwing just endless resources into the meat grinder and clearly he's willing to do that because he has no just as he has no compunction in 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 murdering tens and thousands of innocent people in Syria or in Chechnya he certainly has no compunction with murdering tens of thousands of innocent Ukrainians Ukraine will continue to put up a fierce fight and will continue to take a huge toll on Russia but I don't believe without our support and without the support of the West standing in to do more than we are already doing, I think it will end very, very badly for Ukraine in the short term. So it's very, very simple. We have been imposing sanctions. They're not enough. They're not enough. They're still not enough. We have been arming the Ukrainians, no one more so than the Brits. We led the charge before Christmas in getting them, in particular, these anti-tank weapons and so forth. They need more and they need it faster. They need air, they need air defense, and they need jets, which they're now being promised. But it's over a year, it's over a week since the EU promised that just they haven't got those jets yet. They need them now. But actually, that is the least. They also they need some form of a no-fly zone. And so far, NATO is saying it's a non-starter. Yeah, it's because this could lead to an escalation. There are other people calling for, well, a no-fly zone does not have to be NATO. It can be a group of non-aligned um, 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 countries under, under an EU, ma- under, sorry, a UN mandate under the duty to protect. So the, the laws and the structures are there and all of these things are being looked at. But we need to do more because this is not just a war on Ukraine. This will not stop with Ukraine. This is a war on a way of life. It's a war on democracy. And they will, he will continue if he gets away with it to move into other countries, be it Poland or the Baltic states. And the people in these countries are very nervous. And they have been for a long time. Just to close off so, with, if you were to talk to a South African who is dubious, who says, this is a partner of ours in BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, mm-hmm. China, South Africa. Although the B, Brazil, voted with the, the people who condemned the invasion, even though the other members mm-hmm. of BRICS didn't. What would your argument be to a, a man in the street in Johannesburg who at the moment is feeling, because of historical perhaps links and ties where the Soviet Union supported the, the liberation forces in this country, that, it's, uh, that, that Putin's the guy to back in all of this? How, how would you disabuse him of of that notion i don't know whether i would be speaking to a man or a woman of faith but um hear me out this is and many people have said this this is the yes there's been you know there's been horrible deeds and what i you know i refer to as evil i believe in the existence of absolute evil in our world 
and there have been there have been deeds of absolute evil carried out in countries across the world, including in South Africa, and still as we know. But in terms of an absolute, in terms of an absolute black and white, in terms of an absolute war of between good and evil, we have not seen anything like what is happening in Ukraine today since 1939 to 1945, when that was something different about Nazism, when six million Jews were exterminated and everything else that that regime did. This is the first time since then that we have seen something as diabolical contained within within one man and within one regime, the current Kremlin regime. And the way they are prosecuting this completely unjustified war against a peace-loving, democratic people, where to date 1.5 million Ukrainians have crossed the border into Europe as refugees. It's already been called the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War. Three of them are friends of mine, the, the, the wife, daughter, the wife and the wife's daughter and her mother spent three days driving to get from Kiev to Lviv. They spoke to me yesterday. They were in Lviv. You know, for what it's worth, I said, look, I don't know where you're going. They don't know where they're going yet. I said, well, get to London. You got a home in London. These are people that a few days ago, I mean, were running businesses and, 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 you know, final year in university and had, and that's just, there are, we don't know how many hundreds or thousands of innocent people have been killed. They broke the ceasefire twice for people trying to get out of Mariupol. I mean, the, the behavior, they have used many, many weapons, which are cluster bombs and so forth, were banned under the Geneva Convention. I mean, this is, I could go on, but this is, this is black and white. There is no argument about this. This is pure, pure evil. So South Africa can either sit on the fence or be on the right side of history. There is no, there is no, there is no gray area in this. And I would appeal, I would appeal to the good people of South Africa, having gone through the huge trauma that your country went through with, and I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of apartheid in particular, which for me, and maybe not everybody listening will agree with me, but for me, apartheid was one of the greatest evils on the face of the earth when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s and my parents drilled this into me in Ireland and my school teachers drilled it into me in Ireland and so forth. It was an absolute evil that was perpetrated against the majority of the people of South Africa by a, by a minority. So having, having had that in your very recent past, and I know there are still many social ills in South Africa as a young country which, you know, struggles to... Developed. But having, having, having had that experience and that very, very visceral feeling of what freedom is really about, you know, where I live in the West, people talk about freedom. They don't know they're born. They don't know they're born. They talk about freedom of speech and this and Brexit is freedom and everything else. They don't know they're born. When I went to Ukraine, I met people that really knew what freedom was about because they knew what it was not to have freedom and they knew what it was to spend 100 years fighting and dying for freedom. It was very, very different. It was just, it was absolutely visceral. This is this is something which goes way beyond, goes way beyond domestic relations or trade relations or bricks or anything else. It's what side of the fence are you on? Are you right? Do you want to be right, or do you want to be wrong? Because there are very, very few questions, you know, in human life that are so monochromatic 
They're black and white. It's right and wrong. It's good and evil. And what I see looking in from the outside and from what little research I've managed to do is South Africa is at best sitting on the fence at the moment. There is no sitting on the fence. Sit on the fence or be on the right side of history. Because sitting on the fence here, you're on the wrong side of history. Today is Tuesday, March 8th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Stocks were hammered on Monday, and oil prices whipsawed on fears of a potential Russian oil ban. The U.S. Treasury has put U.S. banks on alert for Russian sanctions busters. And Beijing reconfirmed its loyalty to Moscow, and Western sanctions could make their friendship even tighter. Total bilateral trade between Russia and China is huge. I mean, it's worth over $100 billion. And this relationship will become even more concentrated now. I'm Jess Smith, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. In financial markets yesterday, it was all about oil. More news about a potential ban on Russian crude sent oil prices spiking as high as $139 a barrel. Then they tumbled down to $120. Jittery investors sold off stocks, and the S&P 500 ended the day down nearly 3%. To find out more, I caught up with our U.S. energy editor, Derek Brower. He's at a big oil industry conference in Houston right now. So oil prices spiked when the market opened and went almost up to the record high. Actually, Brent was only about $6 away from the record high. Uh, And then they fell back through the day as it became clear that it isn't kind of an open-shut case yet. There isn't a blanket ban that's going to affect Russian oil exports. If anything happens, it's likely to be an import ban, which is a bit different. So traders kind of digested the news that, yes, the U.S. was kind of changing its position, But some other countries were saying, no, we still need to keep these supplies intact. And markets kind of fell back a bit. But but don't get me wrong, oil prices are really, really elevated right now. And we're we're on the cusp, potentially, of a very damaging price spike. Derek, what kind of damage are people talking about? Yeah, this could be a really damaging price spike for the broader uh, global economy. I've been speaking to analysts who've said that, you know, if prices continue to rise, it could shave one or two percentage points off global GDP this year. This could be the the start of a lost decade of oil demand that would affect the oil industry. But more importantly, for the rest of us, uh, this could be the start of a a very severe recession. Is there a perception that oil prices are going to stay elevated for a long time? And and how has that affected the decisions of people in the industry, you know, oil companies, whether it's the big oil majors or smaller companies? Well, this is the really big problem that the oil market and the global economy are facing right now. It isn't just a possibility of sanctions on Russian oil that are making oil prices go up. It's that there have been years of underinvestment in new supply combined with soaring demand. The world is on an absolute fossil fuel binge right now, and there aren't enough fossil fuel supplies to keep up. And the timing is terrible because oil producers have been underinvesting. Wall Street hasn't been, been letting them invest. But whatever the reason is, oil production hasn't been growing as quickly as oil demand has been. So are we seeing more investment in oil production, especially now that prices are so high? I don't think so. In fact, I've spoken to investors and I've spoken to chief executives of big oil producers, and they say the same thing. We don't want the oil producers to change anything right now because the oil producers are making a lot of money and we like the huge juicy dividends that they're paying us. So it's a real dilemma. There is a national, maybe even a security interest in some countries for oil production to increase, to cope with this sudden surge in oil prices. 
But the corporate interests on Wall Street uh, in corporate boardrooms are the opposite. They are to keep profits high and only to grow production very modestly. So, Derek, I got to ask what the mood is like there. You're at this huge oil industry conference. We've got this war going on, a lot of fear in the oil markets. What, what's the feeling you're getting? Well, it's really funny because the mood is, is really good. You'd think that in the middle of a, a geopolitical crisis, huge tragedy unfolding on our screens every night, and of course in Ukraine itself, that there would be something of a, you know, a downbeat mood among people, frankly, who've spent a lot of time in Russia because oil industry executives in the U.S. have been shuttling back and forth between Houston and Moscow for the past 20 years. But actually what you get here is, is almost a sense of relief and euphoria just because the oil price is so high, they're making so much money, and their role in the global economy as suppliers of this lifeblood of the global economy, oil, they feel like they're being, you know, it's being recognized again. Derek Brower is the FT's U.S. energy editor. The U.S. Treasury Department is warning U.S. banks and financial institutions to be on alert for Russian attempts to evade sanctions. Treasury officials fear that Russian state actors and oligarchs may use cryptocurrency to skirt sanctions. They sent a note on Monday offering bank guidance on red flags like the use of shell companies to hide ownership or third parties to buy real estate. Treasury officials also encourage crypto exchanges to identify and report any suspicious activity. Beijing has been under pressure to condemn Russian President Vladimir Putin for his invasion of Ukraine. But yesterday, Beijing defended what it called its everlasting friendship with Moscow. Beijing's also criticized Western sanctions. But sanctions can actually boost Beijing's own ambitions for its currency. For years, it's wanted the renminbi to be more of a global currency, as our Asia financial correspondent Tabby Kinder explains. China's intent on establishing itself as one of the world's leading powers. So having a currency that is used outside of its borders is crucial for that to happen. So globalizing its currency means boosting its use in foreign trades, also turning it into a kind of store of value in international finance. And all of this would better protect China from fluctuations in exchange rates, protect its economy from market volatility in other countries in the West, and basically just help this ambition of China to become a larger player in international affairs. So, Tabby, how is the war in Ukraine affecting China? We saw Russia invade Ukraine and the West united in a kind of unprecedented levels to cut Russia off from its global financial systems and financing. China, which doesn't believe in supporting Western sanctions, stands to benefit, right? Because Russia will be increasingly reliant on China as a major trading partner and the largest buyer of Russia oil and gas. So total bilateral trade between Russia and China is huge. I mean, it's worth over $100 billion. And this relationship will become even more concentrated now. China and Russia already had this agreement to de-dollarize, which means that they, in international settlements on oil and gas, for example, they deal in their own national currencies now and not the US dollar. Now those opportunities look to be larger we might see Moscow use its foreign reserves in China to finance imports from the country, and this is good for the renminbi. But basically, you still need to remember that there just aren't many governments who would find it convenient to take payment in renminbi. Okay, so still a long way to go for the renminbi, but do you see any risks to Beijing for maintaining such a close relationship with Moscow? Yes. 
China and Russia have forged close ties over the last few years, and mostly on the basis of shared opposition to the dominance of the West, the dominance of the US dollar. But amid the Ukraine situation, China has emerged as the only major economy that still has a direct line to a, a kind of isolated Russia. But yeah, there's pressure on Beijing to change that. So the question for China is, does it want to be seen as funding a war and the invasion of a sovereign nation? China's benefited hugely from globalization and global trade. So it certainly doesn't want to cut off all of its ties with, you know, what is increasingly becoming the rest of the world versus Russia. I want to ask about the SWIFT system. Russia was kicked out of this global interbank communication system after it attacked Ukraine. But China now has this alternative system. It launched it after Russia invaded Crimea. So this rival to SWIFT is called SIPS. How much of a competitor do you think SIPS can be? So China launched SIPS in 2015. You're right. It's China's answer to SWIFT. And it, I mean, it really does have a potential to be a game changer here because it has the ability to have more direct payments between the currencies of China and its trading partners, and that includes Russia. And it also has these messaging capabilities that allow it to bypass the SWIFT system entirely. And the Ukraine situation means there will likely be a broader adoption of SIPs, especially by Russian banks. It's likely that more transactions will be done in, in Remimbi. So it's going to be really interesting to watch how SIPS unfolds in all of this. But just to be clear, I mean, SIPS is still tiny. SIPS has 75 participating banks, which are mostly Chinese lenders, and SWIFT has 11,000 all over the world. And on SWIFT, Remimbi only accounts for about 3% of payments, so it's certainly underutilised. But what we're seeing now in Ukraine will encourage China to expand its audience for SIPS. Tabby Kinder is the FT's Asia financial correspondent. Western brands continue to leave Russia or suspend operations there. And there's one in particular we want to mention before we go. It's the denim jeans brand Levi Strauss. This company has been a symbol of American appeal and Western culture ever since the Soviet era. Back then, people would buy Levi's on the black market. But yesterday, Levi Strauss said it was suspending operations and halting new investments in Russia. It cited disruptions in the region that made normal business untenable. We stand for judging people by the content of their character. And I'm delighted. And we could not have won that municipality unless a lot of black people had voted for Chris Pappas. And I have no doubt that they voted for him because they believed he would be good and help turn around that completely failed municipality of Umgeni, which he is now doing. So that is what we want South Africa to be, where you say, who is the best candidate? Who's going to fix this? The quality of government makes an enormous difference to my life. It creates a context in which I can succeed through my own efforts. And we better get the best people in there. And that is the value set we stand for. Just take us through the, the progress that you've made since winning or since becoming mayor in Cape Town and how the DA's uh, strategy has actually expanded. Well, we, when I became mayor in Cape Town, I won by a single vote but only if the PAC abstained. And I've since become very good friends with Bennett Joko, who was the PAC person, who I visited in his shack at the time in Kosovo, in Cape Town, to ask him if he wouldn't please abstain the next day at the election. Because if he abstained, I could win. 
And I didn't think it would ever happen, but I got home later that night and I said to my husband, you know, I could be the mayor tomorrow. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.